Okay. We've been reading through uh, the Bible, different sections of different types of literature in the Bible. And this week, it's this thing called the epistle. We've been reading in different epistles. So if you've been following us on our reading plan, you were introduced to some of the epistles. We actually got to dip into half of them. Uh, there are so many of them, and we dipped into about half of them. And we've been then preaching from any of the things that were in the reading plan at the end of that week. And so I'm preaching from one of the epistles today. But before we do that, just a little bit of instruction about this genre of literature. And I want to answer some questions. And first of those is going to be news to some of you and not so much news to others of you, but might as well just ask the question, what are epistles? I've heard the term. I'm not sure I know what it means. And basically, epistles are letters from apostles or close associates of apostles that are written to fledgling churches to give them some coaching. They, and those letters have been saved and collected and then canonized, in other words, put in scripture. So what might happen, for instance, is Paul might, the apostle Paul might go to a town, start a church there, the church is going, he's got some officers in the church and the ministry started and does some teaching. And then he leaves and goes to the next town. And the town that he just left experiences something like, whoa, this happened and Paul never told us about that. They might even write a letter to Paul saying, what do we do when Raiders fans come to our church? Are we supposed to be welcoming even them? Of course, Paul would write back and say, no, do not let evil come into your church. But otherwise, <laughs> he, he might write some instructions and we have kept the letters and so we have those epistles or those letters and we've got them uh, recorded. Question comes up, how many do we have? How many are there? Because I said we only touched in a reading plan on half of them. There are 21 that survived and were included in scripture. Does that mean that all, all the apostles, all the leaders only wrote 21 coaching letters to all these churches that started? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, we know for certain there were more epistles written than the ones that were saved and that we have in our scripture. In uh, one of the letters to the Corinthian church, there's a reference to a letter that was written to the Corinthian church that we don't have. We only have two letters to the Corinthian church in our Bibles. We don't have the other letters. So we know that other coaching documents, other training manual type letters were written that we don't have. But we have 21 of them that were saved and then made their way into scripture. When were they written? These documents were written, conservative scholars would argue that these documents were written over a 45 or 50 year span, they would argue that the earliest one was the epistle from James, brother of Jesus. The document, the letter that our message today will be taken from is the book of Philemon, a one chapter epistle, probably written in the early 60s, 62 to 63 AD. And then the last epistles we believe were from the apostle John, written 90, 95 AD. Now that's conservative scholars, which we are. Uh, we're conservative, I don't know how scholarly, but we believe that those are accurate dates. About a 45 year period. And who wrote them? Well, 13 of those 22 were written by the Apostle Paul. Four of those 13 were written while he was in prison. Three of them are called pastoral epistles. So you have pastoral epistles, general epistles that were written to regions of Christians. That might have been 
read here at Marin Covenant and then taken over to Valley Baptist and then taken over to the Episcopal Church and the same letter read to all the churches in a particular region. You have personal letters like the one we're going to look at uh, when we look at Philemon. So that was a letter that was written to a slave owner, Christian, named Philemon, given to Onesimus, his runaway thieving slave, as a letter of recommendation from the Apostle Paul, who sent Onesimus back to Philemon, said, now show him this letter. And we have that personal letter to Philemon called the Book of Philemon, uh, and it's a one-chapter epistle. But 13 of those are written by Paul, four from prison, three are pastoral letters, like First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, where he's given instructions to young pastors. So Timothy would have received that letter as a personal letter. He might have shared it with others, but it was a letter to him about how to be a pastor. One was written by James, one was written by Jude, both presumed to be the brothers of Jesus, I think with good reason. Three of those epistles were written by Peter, three of them were written by John. And as I said earlier, our reading plan this week had us dipping into about half of them. The message that we're going to get this morning comes from one that our reading plan didn't take us to, this short book, rather obscure book, of Philemon. But even though it's short and obscure, it's no less important because when we're talking about the record of the story of God and the story that he's writing and weaving throughout human history, the theme of Philemon is central to that because the theme of Philemon is this, this concept of radical, almost insane levels of forgiveness. And how could you argue about the, and try to capture the story that God is writing in human history and asking his church to write with him and leave out forgiveness. Well, you couldn't, this challenge to radical forgiveness. So let's go there. I've entitled this message, I hate you, I despise you, I forgive you. That's the level of emotion that's often involved in forgiveness. I hate you, I despise you, but I choose to forgive you. And that's a crazy trail to walk. Mark Twain, of all people, captured it pretty well when he said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushed it. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushed it. And all of us, have been crushed by some definition and challenged to forgive those who have crushed us. All of us have. Paul certainly understood that. Paul's writing the letter about forgiveness and that's what Philemon is talking about. He understood what it meant, what it felt like to be crushed. Paul had a genuine conversion to Christianity but that was after a career of persecuting Christians and trying to undo everything the church stood for. And that conversion, although it was legitimate, he was a changed man, that conversion was doubted. So Paul comes into a fellowship after, imagine this, after arresting your aunt, uncle, and cousins because they're Christians on Tuesday, on Thursday, or on that next Sunday, the apostle Paul shows up, comes up to the stage and says, I am now a changed man, I want to be one of you. It would be difficult to accept him, wouldn't it? Because they knew then what we know now, that the best predictor of future performance is what? Past performance. Paul knew what it was like to have legitimately changed, radically changed, and have that change doubted. You're not a Christian. We're not going to believe you. You're not coming in here. 
you stay out. And he had been crushed by that, but he had learned to forgive it. Philemon's experience with Onesimus. We're not going to be able to read through the whole book, even though it's just a handful of verses. Philemon was a church leader, a Christian leader, who owned, quote-unquote owned, sort of owned, Onesimus. Now, that probably wasn't slavery the way American history would define slavery in those, those awful seasons of history where people in America were owning other people. It may not have been like that at all. It's more likely that there was some debt that Onesimus' family owed to Philemon, this entrepreneur, and they couldn't pay it back. So they said, here's how we'll pay it back. We'll give you Onesimus, and he's yours to use and to work for two years or three years or whatever the contract called for. And at the end of that time, our debt is paid back to you. Is that cool? Yes, we shake on it. Philemon then had at least control of Onesimus' professional life for whatever the contract called for. And in the middle of that thing, short of fulfilling the contract, Onesimus ran and broke the contract, tired of paying back the contract, the, the debt. But that wasn't enough. He stole from Philemon in order to fund his trip. And he goes to Rome where he encounters Paul, probably re-encounters Paul, because Paul no doubt had a relationship with Philemon that was redemptive, and uh, trained him and invested in him. And while he was there, he got to know the whole household. And if you know the Apostle Paul, you know that you weren't in his household without hearing the message of the gospel, even if you weren't receiving it. Onesimus, when he encounters Paul, who at this time is in prison in Rome, when he encounters him, has a conversation with him, and he converts to Christianity. He says, Paul, I want to repent. I want to change my life. I want to follow Jesus. And Paul says, good, we'll start by doing this. You're going right back to Philemon and telling him you were sorry and you did a wrong thing by stealing from him and running from him, but take this letter of recommendation with you. And that's the book of Philemon. Philemon understood what it was like to trust somebody, and obviously Onesimus was trusted or he wouldn't have had the opportunity to steal and to be crushed by them and then to be called to forgive and most of us have too, haven't we? Our ex-spouse, our parents who performed at a much lower level than what we think we deserve. A boyfriend or girlfriend who made a promise, picked the fruit and then broke up with the tree, if you know what I mean, and deeply wounded us. Or a friend, or maybe even God. We've been crushed and the challenge of the book of Philemon and the essence of the story of God in history is to forgive. Now, listen to me. Through gritted teeth, through challenging the will, through facing down what we'd rather do and what we feel like doing. I don't mean to imply, because some of our crushings are generational. They're deep and long-lasting and tremendously painful and complex. So I'm not implying that, okay, fine, let's just forgive and go on about life. It's all so easy, that simple. No, it's not that simple. But to at least get to the point where we say, regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I think I deserve, I am going to at least command my life to move in the direction of forgiveness. I'm going to ask God to take me there 
even though reluctantly I go. We've all been crushing. We all have opportunities to forgive. And that's the story of Jesus. It's about forgiveness. But instead of moving toward forgiveness and finding ways to be a fragrance that we shed on the heel that crushed us, if you're like me, more often asking these kinds of questions. Questions like, how can I get justice? And what we really mean by justice is not justice, what we really mean is vengeance, and they're not really the same thing. But they're synonymous for us often when we ask that question. Or why did they do this to me? The why question, that's just a, uh, a deep hole with no bottom. Where did I go wrong? How did I deserve this treatment? Or a favorite of your pastor, this pastor anyway, when do I get to see them get theirs? Mm-hmm. They ate dessert. Now, when do they have to eat the liver? And if they have to eat the liver someday, I want to be the one that serves it to them on a dirty plate. When do they get theirs? If there's going to be a button that gets pushed so that they get the payback for what they caused me, oh, just and righteous God, may I please have your divine permission to be the one that pushes the button that opens the trap door to their pain? Or is it just me? (laughs) We're asking those kinds of questions. But if we're really honest about it, reasonable about it, this thing called faith, and the awareness of the fact that God is writing his story in history, and moving us toward some sort of a just and good and merciful conclusion, and asking the church to be part of the formation of that story, then at the center of that story is mercy. The center of that story is grace. The center of that story is forgiveness. And the only appropriate question even though all of us fall short of asking it, is not when do I get to see them have pain? When do I get revenge? The only story for a Christian, the only question for a Christian in that story is this. I don't know how likely it seems or even feels God, but how can I find the strength and the freedom to forgive? even the deepest wound. How can I find the strength and the freedom to forgive? And again, I don't mean to imply that that's easy or that it's gonna happen the day after tomorrow, but I am wanting to say that to seek anything other than that for the Christian community is perhaps the epitome, the height and the depth of hypocrisy. For in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, did he not link our ability to forgive, I don't know how it's linked, but it's linked, our ability to forgive and the depth of the forgiveness we receive. He said, I forgive my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. And I don't understand all the nuances and mechanics of that, but there is a connection somehow. So for me, I pray that sometimes, and I think, wait a minute, let's think through that, God. I just as, don't forgive me like I forgive others. Do better than that. You know? Let's do better than that, because if you're going to forgive me like I forgive others, I'm doomed. 
but I would love it if you would teach me to forgive at the same level you forgive me. That's the appropriate question for the Christian. How do I find the strength and the freedom to forgive? And one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time in Philemon as an example of an epistle was because I think Philemon offers us some help in, us some help in response to that question. And here's the first way it offers help. A couple of things to remember that are implied in this letter. How do I find the freedom and the strength, the strength and the freedom to forgive? And here's the first point. It's found specifically in verses eight through 14. I find that freedom in part by remembering that people do change. Christianity is about transformation. The power and strength and movement of the Holy Spirit is about transformation, about moving people from here to there, from someplace less healthy to someplace more healthy, from someplace less spiritually in touch to someplace more spiritually, spiritually in touch, to be conformed through the years to the image of Christ more and more and more, more and more and more like Jesus through the years. Transformation. People do change. And an awareness of that, a renewed and constant reminder of that, is part of what gives us the freedom and the strength to forgive. Because I might be forgiving somebody for something they did that crushed me today in full recognition that 10 years from now or 10 weeks from now, they may recognize that they are terribly sorry for what they did and wouldn't do the same thing again. Why? Because they'll be different people. My 20th high school reunion, I remember going back to that, and we were all pretending that nobody had changed. There were hair transplants and every, some guys even leased fancy cars that they could never afford to drive to that reunion because everybody wanted to pretend that they were what they boasted they were going to be when we were in high school. Now the 40th reunion, we had all gotten over it by then. People change. People's hearts change. I mean, people become followers of Christ. They jump into the, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. They mature as Christians. Sometimes we're wounded by people who are brand new Christians, and in 10 years or five years or several months, they wouldn't wound us in the same way because they're gonna be changing. They become better citizens even if they don't become believers. People mature. People's hearts change. And people become useful where they were seemingly useless. They're not always useless. They become useful, they become helpful, they become effective, they become contributors. In fact, the name Onesimus means useful. The slave's name was useful. And Paul has a play on words, I'll read it in just a second, but Paul has a play on words in the letter. He says to Philemon, receive Onesimus. In fact, who knows, maybe this is the time where this Onesimus becomes useful both to you and to me. It would be kind of like a play on words today with a name. If we were to meet a gal who was contentious and wasn't really kind and forgiving and her name was Grace, we might say, hey, receive Grace onto your team. I mean, maybe this is the year that Grace becomes gracious. It's sort of a play on words like that with the name Onesimus. 
people become useful. Listen to this text beginning at verse 8. Therefore, remember that people change. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what I ought to do. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul who led Philemon to Christ and then trained Philemon, and now he's writing this letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. I could order it, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Philemon was one of those prison epistles. He wrote this from prison. That I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, a reference to the fact that Paul had led Onesimus to Christ. He was his spiritual father now. Who became my son while I was in chains. Formally, now here's the idea that people change. Formally, he was useless to you. But now he's become useful to both you and me. He's not the same guy that stole from you and then ran from you. He's a different person. Forgive him. Find the strength to forgive him. And he says, I'm sending him, who is my very heart now, right back to you. I'd rather keep him because he's useful to me. But I'm sending him back to you with this letter of recommendation. So how in the world do we find the strength to forgive when we've been crushed? By remembering that the person that crushed us can be a changed person. There's transformation awaiting. And in fact, there may be a connection between our commitment to forgive and that person's decision to enter into the process of transformation. Second, final point. How do we know people change? Well, because we've changed. And you've got to be aware of the fact that there's been change in you. I've got to be aware of the fact that there's been a ton of change in me. The stuff I used to think was totally cool when I was 21, 18. Couldn't, I just assumed everybody liked my music. That's why I turned up the eight track, because I wanted to be generous and let everybody enjoy it. And I try to remember that when I'm behind a car with big subwoofers and my head is pounding. I remember that was you too, Art, 40 years ago. He's just trying to share. <laughs> we've changed, haven't we? And if we've changed, if there's been transformation in your life that proves to you that there can be transformation in anyone's life. Let's remember that with some level of humility. The person who wounded me, I was that person. I did that stuff. I crushed people. Didn't even realize I was doing it. And I come back to this idea that for someone who has experienced forgiveness and change, it is really the height of hypocrisy to not offer forgiveness to those who have wronged or hurt them. Not an easy thing to do. But I, I've got to call myself out every once in a while. You, you're a hypocrite if you don't offer forgiveness. Well, I don't like, I'm not feeling forgiveness. I'm not feeling gracious. Well, then at least be committed to forgiveness because you've received so much of it. How could you not offer it? And for the Christian community to not major on forgiveness, major on mercy, major on grace. 
It just messes up the whole message of Christ and messes with it. Now, I am not saying there are no consequences and outcomes for the choices people make. There are, and the scripture's full of them. But there is an attitude of forgiveness that must be pursued if we're going to parallel align ourselves with the story that God is writing through history. And in verses 17 through 19, we see this. We see a reminder as Paul's writing to Philemon, Philemon, you've been forgiven. And you've been forgiven by people and you've been forgiven by God. So offer to Onesimus what you yourself have received. Listen to this a few verses later in the letter. So if you consider me a partner, Paul writes, and of course Philemon would have, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Can you just hear Jesus saying that? God saying that? I'm going to welcome you like I welcome my son Jesus. When I look at you, if you have hidden yourself in the cross, if you have said, forgive my sins, God, I want to be a fall. I want to take advantage of what Jesus did for me and died on the cross. I hide myself in the cross. He looks at you and sees the cross and sees his son and forgives like that. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, whether it be because of what he stole from you or because of the contract he broke early, Paul says, charge it to me. Now, is Philemon going to send that bill to Paul? No. This is the same as him saying, forgive it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And then he... I will repay it. Probably there was what's called an amanuensis or a secretary. Paul was dictating and the secretary was writing. Paul was old. His handwriting probably wasn't very legible and he was tired. But he stopped at that point and wrote these words, took the parchment and the pen and said, I'll write this in my own hand. I will repay it. And then he goes and he he takes on uh, the form of Carol Greco, my mom. And he says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Not to mention you owe me your life. I gave you birth, so take out the garbage. (laughs) His point is, how could you not offer forgiveness when you've received so much forgiveness? What audacious levels of arrogance and lapse of memory we must have to not at least seek to move toward forgiveness and to pray for the strength to forgive and to pray for the grace to forgive and the, and, and the ability to forgive and the freedom to forgive even though we don't necessarily feel like we'll ever be able to forgive. I don't feel like I ever will be able to, Lord, but take me there, please, because that's where a Christian needs to be. And I can't get there without you. How do we know people change? Because we've changed. And we are people. And the recognition that people change. And I'm a person who also needed to change. For me, at least, are helps to get into the place where I can practice forgiveness. Because the depth of forgiveness we as followers of Jesus have received 
disallows the shallow forgiveness we sometimes offer. I mean, how long did we scorn God before he was no longer willing to be reconciled with us? 21 years for me, and he was still willing to take me. When crushed by the heel he loved, God has always been willing to spread the fragrance of forgiveness. Always has. Always will be. And he still wants to through his church. That's the point of this epistle. And ask the band if you'll make your way back up to the front as we move toward the last movement of this message. I have a favorite film. It's one of my favorite films. It's the Liam, Liam Neeson version of Les Mis. Remember that film? Did you see that? I don't know how many years ago that one came out. Not the most recent opera film. It was nice for the music because I love the music. But the film that is actually a plot-driven film with dialogue of Les Mis. And no matter how long I teach on forgiveness, how well I represent the book of Philemon and the theme there, and I don't mean to pretend that I represented it well at all, but on my best day, I could never preach the message of Philemon as well as this clip from Les Mis shares it. What's just happened is Jean Valjean, which is a Liam Neeson character, been released from prison. He stinks. He's been in the dungeon for so much of his life. He's released. There's a storm. It's cold outside. He's just fresh out of prison in his rags, banging on doors, asking for a place. Can I sleep in your shed? Can I sleep under a roof? Can I do anything because get out of this weather and I'm hungry? And everybody rejects him until he gets to a church and knocks on the door and a priest says, not only can I give you shelter, but I'll give you clean sheets. Come in to my home. I'm going to feed you. Here, lay down and sleep here. And then the priest leaves him and trusts him and leaves him alone and goes to his own bed. And this is a clip that shows you how Jean Valjean says thank you. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. 
I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Catch that? With this silver, with this act of forgiveness, I ransom you from fear and hatred, and I give you back to God. Consider that. An act of radical forgiveness may be the initiating key that unlocks a different future for somebody. With this, crazy act of forgiveness, generous forgiveness. I ransom you from fear and hatred. I invite you into the life of a changed person and I give you back to God. Your act of forgiveness might be the first chapter in a completely new story that's being written in somebody's life. Let's think about that. Let's stand together and sing this next song together as we consider that message. With regard to the issue of forgiveness, other people have said some pretty powerful things too. Nelson Mandela said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and my hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Or local author Anne Lamott. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison then waiting for the rat to die. There's no freedom in it. Or the great Lewis and late Lewis Smeeds in his great 
book, Forgive and Forget, which I highly recommend. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was you. And we have this epistle, this letter of forgiveness. But I want to finish with one final movement in our time together and give you a chance to reflect on this question while we sing one last song. In a moment of silence and prayer, and then we'll sing. If there was a one-sentence epistle that God would write to you today, what would that epistle say? What would that sentence be? For some, it might be around forgiveness, and you know exactly who it is that needs to be freed by you, who it is you need to forgive so you can be freed. But it may not have to do with that for some of you. If not, what issue would it address? The idea that you can't mess up so much that God doesn't welcome you home, and might he be saying, for goodness sakes, daughter or son, come on home to me, receive my forgiveness. Follow me, you're forgiven. Could it be him saying, you are tremendously gifted and you need to be involved in X, whatever that might be. Might he be saying, worship me, I love it when my children sing to me and pray to me without reserve, worship. What is it that the epistle would say to you? Let him speak to you. And we'll sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. What is your epistle?